And here we are, Cinema Squabble, episode 95. 95. We've made it this far. Adam Gerke, Steve Reeder, Mike Ward. And uh, we are some of Seattle's film critics. We are gathered diligently around the mic. We have gathered diligently in theaters. And we've been watching uh, enough film in the last month. Probably just all of us have ingested enough film. Would you agree? Yes, that, that, and, and yeah. we're full of unreconstructed opinions about all of them. <laughs> right, right. So, my, my belly is full. That right. is true. We have all seen so much at this point. I, I, I kind of need the like the visine on order that I need it now, uh, one. And, uh, and two, just a little bit of a break. I need to disconnect from all media for a little while. Um, yeah. But, Mike, you're here to talk film with us, but also because you are here as the SFCS, that's the Seattle Film Critics Society president, and you have results from the Seattle Film Critics Society Awards this year. Yes, we have all voted, and uh, we have made history, I suppose you could say. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a we'll, little bit. Yeah, we'll, we'll dig into that. Uh, meanwhile, we do have a few films that we do want to talk about, because as we are coming in towards the tail end of the year, uh, this is when Hollywood likes to roll out some of their bigs. And in fact, there are some bigs, uh, one of them most notably being Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Now, we are in a, a slight imposition here this, this evening as we're discussing this because Sarah Michelle Fetters, who is usually with us, uh, is not able to be with us right now. And she and I are on, I will say, opposing forces of the force <laughs> with regard to this film. Uh, I, I will just be forthright and say, uh, let me give you the synopsis of what this is about. Um, what this really takes off with is the surviving resistance, if you've been following the, um, the Star Wars uh, saga, as it were. <laughs> the surviving resistance faces the First Order, which is now becoming the Final Order, in order to kind of finish up the final chapter of this Skywalker saga. So we've got uh, all of the, the characters we've been introduced thus far, including Adam Driver and Daisy uh, Ridley and everybody else that's, that's kind of in this mix. Um, and uh, it's, it's, the, it's the giant bow that must be tied on this entire saga that's been going on for 40 years, 44 <laughs> years, if you will, 43, 44 Somewhere yeah, in that range. That's, that's wild. Yeah, that's right. Sarah came across with this, and we spoke last night in the theater, and she had a chance to say to me, she goes, um, did you see my, my tweet? And I said, no, no, I haven't seen your tweet. She goes, uh, uh, my review. And I'm like, I haven't seen your review either. She goes, <laughs> okay, um, let me show you the tweet about my review. And I said, okay, show me the tweet about the review. It basically, in summation, said she was nearly in tears putting together her her criticism of this most recent film, and was sitting on the fence saying, not even on the fence, in the camp saying, no, I hate this. I hate this film. Do you, Mike, do you have it happen? I, I do, and, yeah. and I will just underscore that. She had said um, this is one of the most difficult reviews she's ever had to write. Yeah. And um, I'm just kind of looking at it now, um, and I'll read directly from the review a small portion of it. The biggest misstep is that Abrams, that's J.J. Abrams, the mm -hmm. director of this uh, Rise of Skywalker, uh, appears content to play it safe and refuses to challenge the audience in any way whatsoever. His film panders, refuting or trivializing what happened in the past two stories at practically every opportunity. It's frankly depressing, and I'm not sure there's anything more I need to add. Hmm. Okay. Adam, your thoughts. My thoughts on the <laughs> film. Here's the thing about J.J. Abrams, and I have said this about nearly every J.J. Abrams film uh, every J.J. Abrams project, every J.J., everything J.J. touches, J.J. is really good at setting things up. He sets up beautiful 
science fiction. He sets up beautiful stories. He is not the closer. And that mm, is the unfortunate yeah. factor here is that I think what he did with episode number seven, which was sort of, that was, I'll call it, that was the reinvigoration of Star Wars. We had kind of given up hope, so to speak. I mean, when we were as kids introduced to four, five, and six, right. and then later introduced to one, two, and three, after one, two, and three, I'll be honest, I really had very little desire to come back to the Star Wars concept period. And you weren't alone. And and right. Yeah. And Abrams came back. They, they gave the project to him. He brought it and put life back into it. And uh, with seven, I don't even remember the name of seven at this point, because <laughs> um, it's not really important. But uh, uh, Abrams reestablishes things, does a lot of fan service. And on the first watch of that film, I remember being absolutely emotional and absolutely stoked about that film in particular. On second watch, I realized, I got actually kind of got angry and a little disgusted with it because there was so much fan service and pandering to what people had already loved and associated with the very early stuff, the very early portions of Star Wars and the things that are really memorable yeah. um, and things that, that I, I think uh, was just so much nostalgia all just getting caked in at once. Uh, then we had episode eight, which a lot of folks I think saw was sort of a sideways transfer uh, as far as the whole Star Wars saga. Now we're on to nine. Abrams is back in the reins. Remember, he's a good setup, but as a closer, this is this whole film is supposed to be the close. And again, where is Abrams weak? It's his his ability to to, to close. Right. He he does wrap everything up to the Star Wars trilogy, and I don't want to spoil things for folks, but the size of the bow that is wrapping up this entire <laughs> forty four years is uh, for me. It was it was frustrating to to really. At a certain point, I kind of sighed to myself. I went, oh, God, get on with it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate. It's also unfortunate that some of the emotional points of the film that happened throughout, and there are several key points in the film that I think are designed to be tearjerkers. Only one of them actually impacts me. And it's unfortunate that the one that impacts me was probably the one that should have been the least impacting of all. Um, huh. And... It, it, that that says something that I think emotionally, tonally, the film is off. Um, fan service happens again because again, it's J.J. Abrams. That's what right. he's really good for. Right. And I think that's one of the the criticisms that Sarah had was that there was way too much fan service. I think the fans yeah. are still going to love it. I think they're going to eat it up. Um, people are going to go see this film regardless of what I think. Um, it is. I mean, we say this maybe once a year. It is the most critic-proof movie, right? I can imagine mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could. Uh, the, the bottom line is, as of right now, it's sitting on Rotten Tomatoes at 57%. And that's about how I feel about the film. Mm -hmm. About 57%. I'm not going to say it's an absolute bomb, but I don't think it's quite the just finish that it was deserved. Um, it just feels a little underwhelming. So, Well, really quick. We sometimes when we get to these 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 finales, right? Mm -hmm. This was something that was talked about. Although there's going to be more Marvel movies, right? Avengers Endgame. There was this conversation around how do you bring yeah. this entire sort of just gigantic universe to essentially a conclusion, right? And and part of the appeal of that movie is the is is the feeling from a lot of people that they pulled it off. They somehow found a way to weave all these threads together and yeah. give people satisfaction without paying fan service. Do you do you feel like this is just too big? Like this is just the the the, 
the lore and the legacy of Star Wars is just so immense that this was almost an impossible task to try I, to accomplish? Yeah, I think it's absolutely Herculean, Sisyphean, whatever you want to say, whatever Greek or Roman or whatever mythology <laughs> we need to put in here to a, a mythical tale. Yeah, I, I kind of think that at a certain point, here's this is the unfortunate side of nostalgia, right? Or the ins- unfortunate side when, when something has been so ingrained in our society and our fabric for so long, and people have developed such love for such characters for so long, for us to want to see the vision that these directors have created or these story writers have created for us. Had this story been written 44 years ago when Lucas and and you know and team were putting all of this together and we knew you know had all of the story been written out at that point maybe we wouldn't have as much of an issue with it but now the fact that it's kind of in some ways they were building the ship as it was flying um so to speak (laughs) or learning to fly it as it was being built um one way or the other maybe there wouldn't be as much of an issue but i guess it's because we were left to surprise to the very end it's kind of like um Kind of, it's it's sort of like, uh, uh, what was the James Gandolfini show, the uh, on HBO? Oh, the Sopranos. Uh, the Sopranos. The Sopranos. The, when when it ends, people didn't really, they didn't quite know how to take that ending, right? Right. You know, it had been built up for so long. It was and anticlimactic. Then, and, and semi, oh. yeah. This this kind of does have a climactic finish to it, but at the same point, yeah, we've grown in love with these for too long to see that this is the service. So. Yeah, I think it's a it's a real conflict. I don't know if there's anybody or anyone who could have actually solved the, the or cracked the puzzle better. So fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, tough, tough one on that. Uh, people are still going to go regardless. So I'm putting it. <laughs> That's I'm, true. I'm putting it in the theater. <laughs> if anything, to listen to John Williams score one more time loudly. You can never so go wrong. Can't go there wrong. we go. Yeah. Score. Uh, Steve, you're in another camp here on another film. Actually, Mike, you and Steve are on, on the other camp. Little Women. Tell us a little bit about this. Not a picture I would have expected to rave about when mm-hmm. I walked in the theater, but here we go, Yeah, Adam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm giving you fair warning. Little Women <laughs> is the latest adaptation of the iconic novel by Louisa May Alcott by the writer and director Greta Gerwig, who really burst onto the scene just a year ago with Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. And she's got some of her favorite people back with her, Sir Ronan, Timothy Chalamet, and others. And this is a terrific ensemble picture. It's about the March sisters, the four sisters coming of age, trying to stake out their respective courses in life in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. The story is still set, latter part of the 1860s, very beginning of the 1870s. It's still set. One of the miracles of this film, and why I'm so high about what Greta Gerwig has done here as a writer and a director, is that she has made this story relevant to the 21st century, She's made it relevant to the Me Too era. She's made it relevant to the zeitgeist of our time. No more so than when Florence Pugh, who plays one of the four daughters, explains how marriage remains a business proposition. Mm. And don't you ever think otherwise. But we've got Saoirse Ronan as Joe, Emma Watson as Meg, Florence Pugh as Amy, and the young Australian actress, very talented actress, Eliza Scanlon as Beth. She was terrific on the small screen working with Amy Adams and Meryl Streep quite recently in Sharp Objects, another uh, cable drama. We've got Bob Odenkirk and Laura Dern as the March parents, Meryl Streep as Aunt March, and Timothy Chalamet, interestingly, as Laurie, a role last undertaken on the big screen by none other than Christian Bale 25 years ago. Believe you me, he's a much less visceral Laurie. But here's the beauty of it. This is such confident directing of an iconic period epic story by Greta Gerwig. 
whether it's a group ensemble with a lot of action, a lot of dynamic action involving the sisters and other family members within the frame, or whether we're dealing with intimate one-on-one scenes, certain mm-hmm. outdoor vistas, the lighting, the placement of the camera, the discreet way that she you know, works her way through this story, trying to juggle all of these subplots involving the sisters, giving them some relatively equal time on screen, with the possible exception of Joe, played by uh, Saoirse Ronan. Uh, it's such confident, assertive, talented work. And all the promise we saw from her, I think, in Lady Bird has more than been realized here. I think it's an excellent story. It thoroughly engaged me. Again, it's not necessarily my kind of story, my kind of source material, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it was part of my sisterly uh, exercise uh, within the past month between and among that Frozen 2 and The Invisible Life, the Brazilian (laughs) film. I went from two sisters to four sisters back to two sisters on consecutive evenings. I loved all the sisters. I love this film. For me, this is a top 10 of the year. Okay. Uh, Steve, to be fair, how many sisters did you have growing up? Oh, I have three younger sisters. Okay, so I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) Those those are my siblings. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Mike, I want to tap into this on with you as well, because you were a fan of this as well. I I mean, what he said. I I mean, (laughs) I'm a big fan of this, and and I think one of the things that I've seen it twice, and one of the things that I've, I've appreciated about it um, and, and the confidence is really, I was looking for the word for it, but I think you're right. This movie just, it, it hits the ground literally running. Mm-hmm. Saoirse Ronan is running down the street in the first, you know, yeah. two seconds of the movie and it never stops. But what it does is it takes this balance of, of what you expect to see. Mm-hmm. It shuffles it a little bit. You know, we, we go with sort of a nonlinear format with the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And if you let those first few scenes kind of wash over you and you get into the cadence and the rhythm of the movie... It becomes incredibly easy to follow. And the whole sequence with, with there, there's a whole sequence that's added involving Saoirse Ronan and the, the amazing Tracy Letts, mm-hmm. who is a publisher. And I don't want to spoil it, mm-hmm. but there is a moment in this movie where it takes the, um, the themes from the, from the Alcott novel and it takes the themes that it's been hinting at and working towards from modern day and it crashes it together. And the first moment you see this conversation start to happen about... Um, themes in the movie. I'll leave it at that. You start to feel like, okay, no, 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 no. This is this is not going to work. But mm-hmm. by the end, it's woven into the story, and it just echoes this amazing confidence and, and ability of Greta Gerwig to say, you know what? I'm going to make Little Women. I'm going to do it my way, and it's going to work, and you're going to like it. Or you're not going to like it, but this is what I'm giving you. And she doesn't really ask much of you other than just take a look at my version of it. And I thought it worked brilliantly. Okay, so now here's what I, I, I'm going to say, and I, I'm going to admit fully on this one. I'm at a disadvantage. I've never read Little Women. I've never seen another version of Little Women. So I am in the, the camp of never seen it, never heard it, net, net, knew nothing about it. Knew To me, Louise May Alcott was a school over in the, the east side, and <laughs> that's about all I, you know, that's, that's it. That's where that comes and goes. I know there were, you know, kids in my school who read it. In other words, you're suffering here from a lack of fan service. Right. <laughs> 100%. My unfortunate situation in this is that I have no point of reference to work from when walking into this film. So when I saw this film for the first time, that nonlinear editing factor to it, yeah, that made this really difficult on me because I had no idea of what, first of all, no idea where are we? What's the time? What's the, I mean, I'm picking up all these pieces as we're going along and I can track things pretty well. But I'm looking at this going, wait a minute, did so-and-so die? Did wait okay, now we're at a now we're now we're in hmm. We're standing over someone's grave. 
But it was never explained to me whose grave it was. But it was around subjects of somebody who had scarlet fever. But wait a minute. Wait, but no, no, she's in this scene over here. But wait, so I was thoroughly <laughs> confused you know, as we as okay. we work our way through the film. And that was really frustrating for me as much as I wanted to try and get in with it and feel that. I never was able to quite grasp the train as it left the station to really be able to track mm. along with it and enjoy it. Um, I, I think, Steve, you're correct in a lot of the lighting, a lot of the costuming, a lot of uh, a lot of the 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 essence that makes this film um, an interesting film. That's all there. I just wish I could have followed it better, or I wish I would have paid attention to read the book before I knew. And <laughs> that's that's the unfortunate part is I came here looking, I, I mean, it wasn't spoon-fed to me enough. That's the unfortunate part, because I, or at least that's maybe that's what I'm getting out of this. I, I was about to say, Adam, we hate to break the news to you. You weren't paying close enough attention to this. <laughs> that's what was going on. The, the, one, the one quibble I have about the film, yeah. and it's interesting, Saoirse Ronan, to my mind, is so good in this film, and she's yeah. going to get a lot of love all the way through the awards season as Joe, is that it made the great Florence Pugh actually seem a little tame or bland by comparison. And I've already praised her for Midsummer, Midsummer and, yeah. and her other work to date. But the, the deal with Florence Pugh is she's almost a little bit too old to play her younger self as Meg, and then right. not old enough to play her older self. So her casting and her look is a little off. But again, maybe that just makes it seem more contemporary, more modern, more updated without changing the actual period of the tale. Yeah. Interesting. <sighs> Tough nut on this one, though. For me, personally, I take it the two of you are theaters on this. Oh, definitely. Uh, yes. Okay. I am a theater. And by the way, all the supporting roles are beautiful. Tracy yeah. Litz has had a very good fall. Yeah, He's oh, been yeah. in a number of pictures and has done fantastic. I mean, Ford v. Ferrari is just an impeccable yeah. performance by him. But Odenkirk, Chris Cooper, um, Meryl Streep. And Chris her Cooper, small that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all these. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, large ensemble cast, and they all get to contribute each in his or her own way. Yeah. I, I got to be on the other side of the equation on this one because I didn't. I, I didn't grab the train. I didn't drink the Kool Aid. <laughs> I am, and, and I had such a hard time wrestling with this. And, and unfortunately, maybe it's the fact that I saw it on a small screen. Maybe mm. that was my disadvantage. Maybe I wasn't induced enough into the whole atmosphere or the 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 concept. But I, for that reason, I can't give it a rental either because if someone's going to rent it, they're going to see it on a smaller screen. I got to have to put this in the skip category. I know that puts me on the island. That puts me on the the critic island. I'm I'm here by myself. Hi. Skip, you say? But, yeah. <laughs> Producer Sprint saying she's in on the, on the she's she, yeah she's on the she's on the skip island with me. Adam here's, hates, here's an idea. Adam hates Greta Gerwig. Here's no, no, an no, idea. no, 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 no. I don't hate Greta Gerwig. In fact, I thought Lady Bird was fantastic. Okay, I just, good. All right. I just, <sighs> thanks for cleaning yeah. that up. Okay. Once the visine takes effect, Adam, I yeah. want you to go out and get a copy of Little Women. You're going to read it. That's going to yeah. be your first resolution of calendar 2020. That that and also staying. Yeah, yes. Yes. Okay. Good. Good enough. Mike, Bombshell. What? Bombshell. Tell, tell us about this. Bombshell is, um, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very timely film. It's mm -hmm. about, uh, well, it's essentially telling the story of Gretchen Carlson, mm -hmm. Megyn Kelly, and Margot Robbie is playing a composite of several yeah. different characters. And it's all sent around the, uh, the time frame at Fox News, mm -hmm. right on the cusp of Bill O'Reilly, Roger Ailes. And some of their uh, indiscretions mm -hmm. uh, coming to light and sexual harassment uh, litigation sweeping through the Fox newsroom. And it's at its core, it's Gretchen Carlson's story. Mm -hmm. She was essentially 
I mean, for lack of a better term, the whistleblower on bringing to light some of these some of these uh, allegations and, and and situations. And the movie is uh, directed by Jay Roach, who's a comedic director who takes this story and, you know, he puts it into a format that fits sort of the Me Too movement. It talks about, you know, this bastion of conservative news casting and and the fact that all of these indiscretions are happening to these women that are on screen that are being groomed into jobs mm-hmm. and it it basically just walks you through i mean essentially a fictionalized with some factual elements mm-hmm. put in mm-hmm. retelling of of those dark days at fox news yeah now behind megan kelly is charlie theron as yes. a, a, and i got to say uh watching this is there nothing that she cannot do at this point? I mean, well, yeah, it's uh, an astonishing transformation. Wow, yeah, to go from monster to Megan Kelly, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know where. What? What? what wow, um, was was kind of my take on this. Yeah, so so I should mention too that there's at the core there's a triad of actresses. So yeah. you've got Charlize Theron playing Megan Kelly, mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman playing Gretchen, Gretchen Carlson, Carlson, and again Margot Robbie who plays a a fictional character yeah. that's comprised of a number of other. Yeah women that worked at Fox yeah. News at the time. Um, but and, and John Lithgow as Roger Ailes. Yeah. Malcolm McDowell as Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. <laughs> nice cameo yeah. From, yeah. from him. The, the thing is, is to, to your point, Charlize Theron, my, my wife watched this with me and, you know, kind of, kind of blind to, for her to see it. And she knew about the movie but didn't really know all the casting. And she was not convinced that that was Charlize Theron until right. we basically proved it to her. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, you got to be kidding me. And so the thing that Charlize Theron does is she she not only gets the voice and the mannerisms, but she just absorbs into her creation of Megyn Kelly. And it is at times frighteningly close yeah. to, to the actual character. In fact, yeah. um, there are elements where you can see, and sometimes movies will do this, they'll put the actual video on the screen in the yeah. background and you can kind of... Okay, so there's the real person, but you know, here's the actor. On yeah. It's it's uncanny what they're yeah. able to do with with not just the makeup. It's not just like I'm performing under makeup. It's a whole transformation that is is remarkable. Right. The thing that I notice particularly about this uh, working in newsrooms for the last twenty plus years, and specifically television newsrooms for me for the last 16, 17, 18, I don't know how many years now. It's been forever. <laughs> I, I am really going to be curious to watch my colleagues watch this film in the next several weeks as they get the opportunity to watch right. that and hear their take, specifically the women anchors that I've known for the last you know gajillion years, and, and hear their takes because n- while none of them have necessarily worked for Fox News or CNN or anything like that, but they've all come up through the ranks of smaller markets. They've all come up through those ranks at some point and always been on the on the opposite end of the camera's lens uh, or the the male gaze of the camera lens, right. and that's really where Lithgow's, or I guess Roger Ailes' character is coming in as this. You know, we get a bump in ratings if we show another inch of leg on your skin, or you know, if your legs are tan enough, you get this. You know, we see all of that, and we see that horror, um, and, and just uh, I don't really quite know where to take it, but I, I want to see what their reaction is to see if they've felt that before in any of their jobs. Well, and and one thing I'll say too, and I'd love to hear Steve's comments on this as well, but the one of the things the movie does well mm-hmm. is it shows you that this is it's systemic. And yeah. and although Fox News is a, is a essentially an easy target with yeah. with something like this because 
you know, they're loud and boastful and they present one side very slanted in the news. Um, and, and, you know, an argument can be made that their news anchors all sort of have a particular look and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, all that. You do get the sense that the people that are engaging in these behaviors, that are affected by these behaviors, it's just, it's systemic. It's, yeah. it's part of, of essentially the, the unwritten contract that you have to negotiate within yourself about, am I, going to, am I going to tolerate this potentially happening if I want to advance to a certain place in this career? Mm-hmm. Um, which Margot Robbie's character wrestles with a little bit. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to wade in a little more deeply here. Sure. I don't disagree with what I've heard so far, but this is a maddening movie to me. Absolutely yeah. maddening. Jay Roach is more associated with comedy than drama, and his writer Charles Randolph, who wrote uh, The Big Short yeah. and uh, The Life of David Gale, some really searing dramas, can't decide what he wants this film to be. Hmm. Uh, yeah. It is fundamentally, as you've correctly noted, a very serious subject. And it's a contemporary one. It's a timely one. And with the exception of the Margot Robbie character, these are all actors playing real-life people. Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, Janine Pirro, uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, all these people. And it evokes chuckles from certain members of the audience to see actors who look fairly sure, close to sure. them. Here's the problem. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go back to the word you used with Star Wars, Adam. Yeah. Tonally, this movie is just all over the map. It doesn't know whether it wants to be a sitcom or a searing social drama. Hmm. There are scenes that are so trivial to the subject matter. For example, there's a sequence, and even the way it's shot and edited, we suddenly see all these actors who just happen to be posed in the main Fox newsroom or walking through, and we realize, oh, there's an actress playing Kimberly Guilfoyle. Sure. There's an actor who oh, looks yeah. kind of like Sean Han, and it's yeah. right off a sitcom on the small screen. And uh. there are times when the music is so breezy and jazzy and superficial, I'm thinking, you know, yeah. uh, this, is, this is not treating the subject matter seriously. Conversely, and this is what's so maddening about it, yeah. the acting is excellent. Yeah. I mean, I, I know Sarah made the point right after the screening that we all attended that it's Nicole Kidman's movie. She's the one who should be getting all the love at award season out of this. But there's a scene with Margot Robbie who has some silly scenes in the movie. Oh, but, yes, she does. But there are two scenes with her fictional character. One, when she first gets into the inner sanctum yeah. and has that meeting with... With, uh, with Ailes, yeah. With Ailes, mm-hmm. played by John Lithgow. A mm-hmm. truly creepy, disturbing scene, which Jay Roach, not surprisingly, has described as the most difficult scene he's ever had to direct. I can believe it. It gets under your skin. That's, that's a great and disturbing scene. Yeah. And then there's a later scene in which we have... Margot Robbie's character on the street after yet another of these encounters as she realized she's being drawn into this this awful, awful professional and personal situation. She's on the phone with her erstwhile friend, played by Uh. Kate McKinnon, of Saturday Night Live. Again, now they aren't being playful with each other as characters and as fellow Fox employees. Now they're being serious. And she realizes the trap that she's in, and Kate McKinnon feels very deeply for her and, and, and regrets that she perhaps allowed this to happen, didn't warn her, allowed this naive young woman to get involved in this. But the problem is, tonally, it keeps juggling and yeah. shifting all the time. I was also thinking, okay, how is this going to play to the broader public? I think if your politics are relatively more progressive, you're going to laugh and chuckle at these people and these actors and say, yeah, that's Fox, that's yeah. yeah. If you're more conservative, you're going to say, not only is this unrealistic, it's heretical. It trivializes everything Fox does and everything Fox stands for. I think that Roach and Randolph and Charlize Theron 
wanted to go deeper than that, but I think mm. they are defeated by the movie in which they find themselves. So for me, this was so frustrating to watch because I'd watch one great scene and then one uh, yeah. trivial scene. Well, and I'm going to agree with you because the, the, there are a number of, of, of opportunities for this movie to be what it thinks it's going to be. It's, mm -hmm. There are a number of opportunities for this movie to be profound, to really be timely, to actually have the the backbone to say something about what we're seeing. But the opening sequence is Charlize Theron walking through the newsroom, talking directly to the camera as if this is some sort of mockumentary. Yeah. And then we abandon that whole framing device because now we're going to shift to a different tone. And Steve's right. This movie is schizophrenic to the point where it 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 you can see the big short and vice. You can yes. see these films being successful, especially with the Academy, and you can see Bombshell being the next iteration of that, and mm -hmm. it doesn't work, hmm. and it wastes such great work from their three main actresses, and, and John Lithgow, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. But it is maddening, and it is frustrating, and I, I don't understand. Their sub <laughs> the subplot with Margot Robbie and Kate McKinnon yeah. is yeah. so... Yeah, that grossly handled. Yeah, that felt that felt that part did feel contrived. It's, and, it's and, mostly one-liners until they finally have that phone conversation. But 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 yeah. it's so disingenuous, and it's not their fault. I mean, they're yeah. they're trying to work through the material, mm -hmm. but it's so disingenuous that when it does get serious, it has no credibility. Huh. So again, I'm going to be on I think Critic Island over here. I did not see this as schizophrenic as it, it's as as you did, Steve. Uh, and I do actually see this. Still making its point, and I think there's actually another interchange between Margot Robbie and Charlize Theron, uh, where they're basically at their cubicle, and Megan Kelly's line to her is, "Look, it's not my job to protect you," and Margot Robbie's character looks back and says, "I thought it was our job to, to all protect each other." Uh, I thought that right. was that was the stinger right there, and that that line where there's that realization that's happening there. I think that was about as you know as damning as we were going to get, or as, as, as you know. And let me pivot yeah. that a little bit further, Adam, sure. to to go back to a comment you made on a totally different angle here. Yeah. In a way, that struck me as one of the more authentic lines, not just about women, yeah, professionals, but about the media, yeah, and the dynamics of a newsroom, yeah. especially a high pressure network cable news operation like Fox. So I took that in a variety of ways. That was one of the best lines in the script. Sure. So. <sighs> I'm going to put this into the theater category for myself, but I understand that there may be some opposing views here. Uh, Steve, how about yourself? I'm going to say rent it or stream it. I don't think it's worth going to a theater for. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm in the rent it category. Okay. okay. I'll, I will be fascinated to see maybe less than how it does in the box office, but if the Academy yeah. decides that this is the next you know sort of issue movie that they want to champion. Yeah. Um, and the ripple effect that that may have. Well, here's the interesting thing that I can I can kind of give a little forewarning on or a little foreshadowing on. Steve and I were given kind of the the, the knowledge of what films are being pushed on SAG-AFTRA mm -hmm. and uh, the Screen Actors Guild. And what that basically entails is it shows us which films have the deeper pockets. Because we as right. critics have already seen a lot of these films. We've already gotten screeners for a lot of these films. But now we can see, okay... This is really where we start seeing the pack separating. Which of these films has the deep enough pockets to send not only the DVD to this critic group, but this group and this group and this group? And it really does become, uh, you know, who the, those who have the deeper pockets get the DVDs and the films of the of the voting critics and the voting, you know, the voting members and all that. It's almost like yeah. a political campaign. Very huh? much so. Bombshell <laughs> is right in the running with all of that. So yeah. along with uh, Joker, 
uh, Bombshell. I'm trying to remember some of the other names that I saw on the list. But there was a whole bunch of them that are all right, right. in line with Well, Well, at. the Netflix crowd, yeah. Marriage Story and The yeah. Irishman, absolutely. Yeah. So um, w- we have yet to see as we start entering into uh, the, the actual critic season or the critic, uh, the voting time. Uh, yeah. Here's a film, though, that I think is sure to make probably the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah, Steve is making his, his you're, cat's you're, paw You are filming me. this, right? There's I wish, video I wish we this. could. By the way, all the fur yeah. has been added to me here in, in post-production, in, yes, radio yeah, post-production. Exactly. <laughs> How do we sum this up? Cats. You're familiar with the musical of Cats. Andrew Lloyd Webber, the uh, composer... Uh, of the of the Broadway hit Cats. Imagine all the music of Cats and uh, the talent of today all coming together. People in skin suits that have now had CGI fur added to them. You got T Swizzle. You've got uh, <laughs> who else? Idris Elba as a. Uh, McCavity. Honestly, I think you could probably name any random um, list of Judy, actors. Judy Dench in the normal Dench. male role of Old Deuteronomy. Judy Dench, uh, Ian uh, McKellen. Um, there's, there's a whole host Jennifer of Hudson as Grisabella. Sure, why not? Um, so, <laughs> I, I, I got to be brief on this one. It's an hour and fifty minutes. Do you recall how long this actually runs when it's on, like in a Broadway form with intermission? Do, do, a little more than two hours. Okay. So I nearly fell asleep several times through this last night as we were watching this. I had a really hard time with this, and I think part of it I'm going to put squarely on the shoulders of, of Andrew Lloyd Webber out of the fact that so much of this, it's recitative, basically, where we've got spoken, singing words happening, and it was all the same pace. There was no change in rhythm. And even when we get to the two or three big hits... I just didn't care. And, I, you know, McCavity, that's his name, right? McCavity? Yes. He's not there. I'm sorry. Uh, my entertainment factor on this went from, uh, well, maybe this won't be terrible, to, <laughs> oh, God, what have I subjected myself to? This is uh, this is in absolutely ragged shape. Um, ah, that's where I'm, I, that's about the best I got in me for that. I'll defer to you, Steve. Yeah. Well, yes, it's it's a it's a complicated uh, way to address this. I will wholeheartedly agree with you on this point, because there really is no narrative thread no. in the original musical, because it's based on a series of poems by T. S. Eliot mm-hmm. that aren't meant to be this kind of narrative universe. I think Hooper's film, and he knows what he's doing. He mm-hmm. won an Oscar for uh, the King's Speech, and he has directed The Danish Girl and some other very fine films in the past decade. But he has no story yeah. to work with, first of all. So for me, ironically, an hour of 50 minutes seemed awfully short uh. last night because I thought, nothing's happened yet. You know, you, <laughs> you, even knowing yeah. the story, I realized nothing is going to happen until yeah. Jennifer Hudson gives us a beautiful version of memory. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the summit of the story. But yes, we have a lot of characters who are basically doing sort of set pieces mm-hmm. that are very, very loosely strung together. We do have a character, Victoria, played by a very promising young ballerina, a principal with the Royal Ballet at Covent Garden, yeah. named Francesca Hayward. Uh, and she has the most elaborate choreography, which was a very bright move mm-hmm. in in uh, creating this movie and developing a concept for it. But yes, I think the fundamental problem is there's very little story there about yeah. which of the Jellicle cats is going to have a chance to basically ascend to a higher plane and return to realize a newer, 
and better life. Yeah. But beyond that, we have a lot of humans. We didn't mention Taylor Swift, by the oh, way. Oh, I, I did. Oh, you I, did. Yeah, okay. Yeah. T-Swizzle. Right. Yeah. Yes. There was, emerging <laughs> yeah. from her hammock <laughs> yeah. in grand fashion. Um, we basically have a story of a lot of cats with very loose relationships throughout, singing set piece numbers, yeah. not built around much plot, and forcing the director and Tom Hooper and his design team to try to make each of these set pieces as interesting as possible. I will say this much. There is one that I found particularly interesting, even though, okay, you can see where the green screen came into play. Yeah. But, oh, no. when we, but when we meet our railway cat yeah. and we have the little tap dance number on the rails, I love that. That was very, very cleverly done, framed, shot, mixed, everything else. But I fundamentally agree with you. There's just not enough there, yeah. there, to make this visually or narratively interesting for nearly two hours. Yeah, no, it just, yeah, it just, it just fell flat. I'm gonna put this right into the skip pile for me. Unfortunately, if I have to watch this again, it won't be uh, soon enough. Soon enough. <laughs> yeah, and we um, haven't even started talking about all of the fur which was added in post, and, yeah. and oh. the transformation of that over time from release of first trailer and all the backlash to Hooper's wise decision to cause some of that fur to recede mm -hmm. so we can see more of the human features and presumably, yeah. you know, accept more of the human emotion in these cats. That's yeah. right. They redid the cats, right, yes. basically. yeah. yeah I mean, a lot of effort. I mean, the, as the credits rolled, watching just how many digital artists are in the credits, it just kept going, kept going, kept going, like the rest of the film. It kept going. <laughs> Please make it stop. Shake a can of pennies at this one. Yeah. Um, it, it wouldn't. Um, and I'm a cat person. I'm a cat guy. I love cats, just not these cats. Uh, I'm a cat whisperer, secretly. You oh. guys don't know that, but okay. I do that. And, yeah. and, so, and sadly, yeah. everyone even, knows that now, though. <laughs> and sadly, for all the millions spent on CGI, yeah. uh, crafted by all of these professional artists, still some of that looked phony. Yeah. Instead of looking like the movements that cats would make, jumping or leaping or landing or falling or tumbling, yeah. it looked like motion capture humans yeah. sort of, uh, you know, uh, tweaked afterwards through editing and all the rest in post to make it seem like what cats would do. Right. I will give them credit. I think some of the dance was well executed. I think there is that as a positive um, question. The the music that we're hearing, Andrew Lloyd Webber, it was all synthesizer based. Uh, there was, there was, and, and it was very true to the era which this was composed, 70s, 80s, where we hear ping, ping, ping. I mean, this is, this is old school synthesizer. This is not modern. They did not modernize that at all from what I was hearing. And Lloyd Webber does get a credit at the end, yeah. if you watch closely, for being executive music producer. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So, Steve, where do you come in on this? Well, I'm going to have to say, I hate to say it, Jennifer Hudson does a beautiful job with memory. There, were, there was actually a young woman sort of uh, snuffling and tearing up next to me in the hmm. theater last night during that. And that wasn't a cat allergy? No, it was not. I, I trust not. Anyway, okay. I, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say skip this one. Skip okay. the cats. Yeah, yeah. All right. Agreements on that. <laughs> Mike, we have had a lot of film discussed in the last year. And the Seattle Film Critics Society, once a year, we have a, the, the gathering Everyone gathers round. We all submit our nominations to Best Picture, Best Director, Best This, Best That, da, 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 da. <laughs> The voting all happens. Yes. You've got stats. You've got numbers. Tell us, what can we walk away with from this year knowing that we have voted for? Well, I mean, it's, it's always a fascinating two- to three-week process to yeah. uh, send out the ballot to our membership, 
Um, and then as the person who sort of collates and tabulates all of those, all of the data that comes in, um, you know, yes, we get the mad rush at the end of the deadline. But, you know, it's always interesting to see those first ballots and where they come in. And are, are they are they in line with what, you know, the membership at large is going to think? Or are they just kind of rogue and they're like, no, I made up my mind and here we go. Um, it's just a fascinating process to see those come in and to start seeing the numbers in the in the spreadsheet all move around and the films jump up and jump down and come back up. And I, I think what I what I take away from it is that this was a terrific year for film. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrific year across a lot of different genres. I think one of the things that that we noted, um, 66 individual films got a best picture vote. Wow. Um, and of course we nominate 10. So a lot of people were left out of that best picture race. But I mean, if you were to see the list, uh, you would see any any genre you would find in an old-fashioned brick-and-mortar video store is referenced there. We've got, you know, comedies and foreign films and action movies and you know, all, anything you could imagine, there's at least representation among our membership. And I think that maybe doesn't make us unique, but it certainly makes us a fun group to kind of pay attention to and follow. And I, I always um, I always get surprised at certain movies that, that pop in, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, oh, I, I never would have assumed that would get a vote. But look, it's number two on the ballot. That's going to move it right. <laughs> sure, you know? sure. So you get into sort of that stuff. And then we gather it all. We send out the nominees and then you just watch the picking of favorite children happen and, right. you know, and, and again, it's a whole nother phase <laughs> of the process, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And this is our fourth Seattle film critics society awards. And, um, I wasn't sure what to expect this year, you know, again, with a lot of love around a lot of different films, I, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised. I'm thrilled, but I'm a little surprised that we gathered around one movie to win five prizes. Yeah. And so let, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. uh, in fact, how do you want to work this? Do you want to work from the top down or do we work from the bottom up? How do we, you know, I mean, we can, we can kind of go through that and then talk about some of the, the, the categories that aren't as, as prominent, if you will. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, I, I know what we can do our acting prizes. I yeah, know that let's, like, let's hear about it. Yeah. Um, in our supporting character, uh, supporting actor and actress role, um, for best supporting actor, Willem Dafoe for The Lighthouse. Yes. Is our winner. Damn ye, Winslow. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's, I mean, it's such a unique performance. It's, it's maybe one of the most unique performances you're ever going to see, certainly in recent memory. Oh, man. Um, but what's unique about that is you look around at other critics groups, and here we are kind of on an island. We've had a lot yep. of island conversations here today. Willem Dafoe winning Best Supporting Actor got a lot of praise on Twitter. Got a lot yeah. of great reaction, but we're kind of we're kind of just the only ones up there. With Are Willem we really? Mm. Oh um, man, with a couple of exceptions, sure. you know. But but by and large, that was a nice surprise. You know, yeah. a lot of people are going with Brad Pitt or. You know, one of the two gentlemen yeah. from the Irishman, Al Pacino yeah. or Joe Pesci. But no, we, we went with Willem Dafoe. Had it not been Dafoe, I would have felt <laughs> wounded. And he did it in black and white for him. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And, and I will say this, you know, uh, Robert Eggers, who made The Lighthouse, also made The Witch, yes. which was in our first year as mm-hmm. a film critic society. And I went back and I looked um, and The Witch did really well with us, yeah. nomination wise and, and, you know, victory wise, if you will. So I'm not surprised that the lighthouse had a passionate fan base, and it it came close. I mean, that was its only win, yeah. But it came close in a number of its categories. So yeah, yeah. I, Robert Eggers just scores with us. I it guess. got a lot of support from me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Best supporting actress. We actually had a runoff as the balloting came down. We had a tie uh-huh. between Laura Dern, who is terrific in Marriage Story, uh, and Jennifer Lopez, who yeah. gives a career-defining performance in Hustlers. 
And if, again, you look at the consensus, Laura Dern is kind of getting a lot of the attention. And then Jennifer Lopez wins with us. Mm-hmm. And again, huge reaction on that. And, and Jenny and rocks go, the block. Yeah. And if you go back and you watch Hustlers, I mean, Laura Dern does some terrific work in Marriage Story. But yeah. if you want to look at a, at a, at a supporting performance that actually extends through the course of a film mm-hmm. and actually amplifies the plot and the story and and what Constance Wu is asked to do is actually yeah. the lead of the performance. She gives a remarkable yeah. turn in Hustlers. In so. fact, I would go a little further, Mike. I would say that she lends so much support in Hustlers. I actually thought of her as the lead actress. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so it was it was kind yeah. of a, it was a tough call because she does get just so much screen time. Period. Yeah, and she has a lot of the yeah. best lines. Yes. She does. Yeah. Yep. I still, I'll always remember that first scene where Constance Wu is finally sort of literally brought under the fold. You know, the the the, the big fur jacket opens. Come here, come right. here, come here. Get in my fur. Right, yeah. right into the under the wings. It's yeah. it's a great performance. Uh, in the lead actor and actress categories for lead actor, uh, we went with Adam Driver in mm-hmm. Marriage Story. Uh, if you've seen the film, it's hard to argue against yeah. that. Yeah. And for best uh, actress in a leading role, we went with, and I was thrilled that this happened, Lupita Nyong'o. For, for us, us yeah. a movie that came out in March. It's yeah. a horror film. By all accounts, a March horror film, even a popular one, even a right. box office hit, gets forgotten by critics groups and awards groups. But Lupita made it through to the finish line. But if you I, get to play your own doppelganger, yeah, exactly, it helps. Exactly. <laughs> well, and not only that, but uh, I seem to recall that Get Out several years ago was it, or was it just last year? No, two years ago. Yeah. Get Out two years ago. Uh, that was also an early release. It was. And it was a, a strong finisher for a lot of uh, critics groups around the nation. A best picture winner so, for us. Exactly. Yeah, so right. it's not uncommon that we see something no. sneaky when it comes to, uh, and specifically, uh, Get Out, Us. I mean, the connection right. there, I mean, no, no question. So, okay. Yeah. So um, just a couple other ones really quickly. For best director, it was a, it was a super competitive uh, field with... Robert Eggers, Greta Gerwig, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, the Safdie brothers who made Uncut Gems, which is coming if you haven't seen Mm -hmm, Uncut Gems. mm -hmm. It is a lot of movie. Um, And then, of course, this uh, newcomer named Martin... Is that Scorsese? How do you say that? Scorsese? Anyway, he made this little uh, indie movie called The Irishman. So, uh, great field, and Bong Joon-ho for Parasite wins Best Director. And... It's, (laughs) It's, <laughs> I just smiled when I saw those votes come in because yeah. he really did run away with it. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a directorial performance that spoke to our membership in a way that gave it again, screenplay, mm-hmm. uh, ensemble cast, which mm-hmm. I didn't see coming because, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to judge actors speaking in a foreign language, but this cast resonated with our membership. Uh, it won best foreign language film. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to the big race for best picture, Parasite took the top prize. Parasite taking the lead. Wow. Yeah. Um, You know, and I think it's funny. You know, I said this too, that as we try to find movies more and more, you know, we have to go look here on this streaming platform, but it's not there. It's over here. No, it's in theaters and no, it's on VOD. And, you know, we're constantly in this pinball machine of trying to find movies. Movies like Parasite find us. Yeah. You know, so the movies that are out there that are good, they find a way to find us and they, they speak to us and they resonate. And I think if I look through this entire field, you could make a case for pretty much all of these movies, even if you like them or don't, that they resonated with a core group of people yeah. 
uh, that justifies not just our nominations, but anything that may come their way. You know, and there's there's actually more truth in what you just said about that, how they find us in this regard. <laughs> uh, because the first few screenings that happened for critics here in Seattle, I missed them all. And so I thought to myself, oh, no, how am I going to catch up with this? How am I ever going to see this? And then it was, then you know, playing it like the Egyptian, and I missed it there. It, like every turn I was making, missing it, missing it, missing it. And then I thought to myself, well, gosh, I wonder if we're going to get this mailed. And I didn't even realize it was under my nose in the neon booklet. <laughs> there it was until just on a whim, I was like, well, I had to see what neon sent us this year. Oh my gosh, there's parasite here. Yeah. And s- suddenly I was like major relief and and uh and so it found me. There you regardless. go. Regardless. Exactly. So it found me. Really yeah. quickly, I'll just mention three other categories. And you can go to seattlefilmcritics.com and see our yeah. list of nominees and winners, um, if I can get that plug in there. Yeah. Um, we launched a new category for action choreography to honor stunt ensembles and some of that work right. that gets grossly overlooked in the film industry. Uh, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, was a runaway winner this year in oh, that yeah. category. And if you've seen the movie, you can easily you understand know why. why. Yeah. We also give out a best youth performance. Uh, you, uh, The rule we set is that you must be 18 years of age or younger upon the start of filming. So, mm-hmm. you know, when it goes into production. Uh, that also went to a runoff between Julia Butters in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Thomasin McKenzie in Jojo Rabbit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think carrying over some of the love from Leave No Trace uh, that uh, she had last year, Thomasin McKenzie and Jojo Rabbit uh, yeah. won that award for us. And then we have a villain of the year category. Tell us about which, the villain of the year. Because... <laughs> which I remember when we introduced this, maybe you guys remember this at our, yeah. at our membership <laughs> meeting. We got some like, what? Yeah, We're not the MTV <laughs> Movie Awards. What is yeah. this? What are you doing? But villain of the year has become, I think, our most popular category among our membership because... Yeah. And we are creative at coming up with nominees. There yes. are category. so many places every year you can go with your ballot yeah. on this. I was really pulling for Rebecca Ferguson in, you know, Dr. Sleep. I yes. Mean, that, I, I, I was in love with that. I, I, 100%, who could fail on this? How could I possibly fail? But Mike... Well, a piece of fabric is is more of a villain than Rose the Hat or Rebecca Ferguson. How does that come out? This tiny little movie from A24 called In Fabric Uh that did, you know, the festival circuit and a couple of spot screenings in different cities around the country didn't even open really until this month. Yeah. The Red Dress from In Fabric is the villain of the year. And if you see the movie. Yeah. It's kind of hard to argue against it, even though Lupita Nyong'o's in the category for right. us playing the doppelganger. We even we got enough votes for Arthur Fleck and the Joker, which was yeah. you know people are like he's a villain. Like well, yeah, yeah, yeah. some of the people yeah. think so. Um, Joe Pesci's character in The Irishman made it too, but the red dress when yeah. you see in fabric, <clears throat> it kind of makes sense. How do we deliver the award to that though? Like I mean, you just do we send it to the the actual <laughs> studio and say congrats? I mean, that's for others to decide. I just count the votes. So, I, I mean, right. you guys chose a piece of fabric. You guys got to kind of figure that out. So but. now about the visual effects, too, though, there were some importance about the visual effects specifically because there were some yeah. that were overlooked. Well, yeah. But so, not by us, but by others. Yeah. So we, um, we, we awarded Ad Astra, uh-huh. a terrific film from the start of the fall um, for best visual effects. Last year, we honored Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm-hmm. Um, the one unique thing about those uh, two films is that the Academy, when they released their short list of finalists for the Visual Effects Award, uh, left both of them out. Yeah. So Ad Astra, which has dynamic, almost just, I mean, it's almost just so immersive that you don't even realize you're seeing a film full of visual effects. It's right. so well done. 
we it resonated with us, but the Academy thought, yeah, no, yeah, not 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 one of the ten best of the year, and that's unfortunate because I think a movie like Ad Astra could use a boost like that because if anything, the visual effects really that, yeah, are, that's what are sold are flawlessly put yeah. together. Yeah, very true. The uh, the another one that that stood out to me was the um, the score specifically this year. Uh, we yes. had an, an interesting panel to choose from here. Ultimately, they, they came in. Thomas Newman, very traditional score for 1917. Yes. Uh, and Steve, you'll have to help me out with here on the pronunciation. Hildur, uh, she's the composer for Joker. Hildur. Oh, uh, forgive me a moment here. Guten, I, I need to. I want to uh, say Gudentor. Oh, here we are. Gwonadotr. Okay. That's a good, that's a very good Icelandic name. See, and that's that's about as close as it's going to yes. get. <laughs> Hildur. Do you realize that Iceland produces like one nominee in that category like every year? Yes. And, but yes. Hildur, especially with us, specifically yes. for Joker and her work on the cello, that she put a lot of that score together, and a lot of it was put together before the film was even in production, where, or it was in production, but the 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 score was being played on set yes. while they were filming it. So she already had an idea of what was anyway. That that's actually kind of counterintuitive to how most scores are done. They do it right. after the fact, not. Four. Um, so for Joker, she was nominated. Uh, also, uh, uh, we had the the score from The Last Black Man in San Francisco. The score from Us also making it into their music a very big role in Us. But our winner being Uncut Gems, and that's uh, Daniel uh, La, uh, Lopatin, I think. Maybe is, it, is it French or is it Spanish? Well, I know that's he records under the name One O Tricks Point Never. Yeah. And he does this really. Um, eccentric sort of electronic EDM style of music yeah. that, that's almost uncategorizable, although I just threw a bunch of category names. But I think it, that but. works. I think that's <laughs> yeah. actually very accurate in the description and it, kind of minimalist in some regards, too, out of the fact right. that we're not getting uh, full symphonic uh, production here. It, it really does strip it down to uh, what I would say is very appropriate for the film, and it's uh, a lot of the EDM or the electronic sound coming from clubs and East Coast, West Coast, this sort of fighting, right. and that's exactly kind of what we're getting uh, in, in this East Coast New York story of uncut gems. Um, and, so intense, so yeah. claustrophobic, the storytelling right. itself. You you need music that accents and doesn't sort of take you out of the moment. Right. It's just there to discreetly uh, yeah. emphasize well, yeah. the moment. And, and yeah. as people get to see Uncut Gems, it is a movie that's all about mood and, and tone and atmosphere. Yeah. And, and it is so frenetic. Yeah. Uh, and there's just so much happening all the time that you can't. It's a very delicate thing to make a score that doesn't overwhelm. Right. You know, the overwhelming that the audience is supposed to feel from the, the chaos that, in this case, Adam Sandler's character is going through. Right. Um, and so it is a really masterful work, I yeah. think, for a movie like that. You and, don't usually get scores that good. In and Uncut like Gems, that. that also took our best editing or the it did. editing it, yeah, award? It did win best film editing. So, uh, and the best editing is often the film editing you don't notice. So, uh, it's yes. how it's often and described. Since but, this is Cinema Squabble, I, I, I made a comment that I didn't realize the category was most film editing, but that's okay. You guys, <laughs> you guys like best film editing? Most yeah. individual edits in a major motion. You know, I, I may have voted a different way, <laughs> yeah, but you there, know. There was a lot of editing in, involved in that. Because I, I, it is quick. It is that frenetic pace there again. But so. wait a sure. minute. If, if we consider the edits that had to be made then in The Irishman over the course of three hours and 19 <laughs> minutes, we might have a closer battle here. Well, yes, that is that is a fair point. So, all right. So that is all in the works there. Seattle Film Critics Society. What is the website again, Mike, if people wanted to learn more? Seattlefilmcritics.com. You can see our nominees, our winners, and a couple of other things that we put up through the year. And then at Seattle Critics 
we're on, constantly retweeting and sharing our members' work on, on, on yeah. the Twitter machine. So. And also important, uh, we are also in the, in the process of trying to grow as Seattle Film Critics Society. So that is true. if you are interested in doing more film criticism or you yourself are a film critic here in the Seattle area and want to know more, definitely get in contact with us. Because uh, uh, you can, you can, uh, I'm at Should I See It uh, as president. You can reach out to me. My my DMs are open. Is that what you said? Sure. Yeah, that I sounds, guess sounds yeah. so yeah. sleazy. Careful, you don't want people sliding up in those, but yeah. yeah. Careful now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, our uh, at Seattle Critics Twitter page, you can, uh, those those DMs are open too. And yeah. you, can, you can reach out to us and, and we're, we're all easy to find. Anybody that we retweet, anybody on our membership page, you can reach out to us and we'll We'll steer you where you need to go. Excellent. So Mike Ward from the Seattle Film Critics Society joining us once again on that. A recap on what we've talked about so far. Cats getting two skips from the Squabblers. Bombshell getting a theater and two rental recommendations. Little Women splitting the vote. Two strong theater recommendations, one skipping, and a producer screaming over my shoulder saying, (laughs) Skip it! Skip it! (laughs) Star Wars getting a theater recommendation and a skipping recommendation with Sarah not present, but Sarah saying, Skip this one. Yes. Me, on the other hand, saying, Go ahead, see it in the theater. Enjoy it for what it is. Just don't expect the world. Get a little extra butter on the popcorn. Yeah, you'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine in that regard. <laughs> Episode number 95. Steve, you working on any projects at this point, finishing up the year? Well, aside from uh, preparing to vote on the SAG Awards, of course. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yes, I am working on sort of a year in review. I like to let sort of the awards dust settle and all of the, the extra viewing, the intense extra viewing at the year's end settle before I do a summary piece for Northwest Public Broadcasting sort of this is the year that was, because the second half in particular was exceedingly good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as someone who held out for The Lighthouse as the best <laughs> movie of the year, yeah. I'll have more to say about that, too. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. You and me both. <laughs> uh, Mike, any projects on your uh, your plate? Uh, just uh, reviews at shouldisee.it. Uh, should I See It is my website. And, um, you know, I, I was realizing that January 2020 will be year 10 the start of year 10 for uh, Should I See It, which is sobering and crazy, and I can't even wrap my head around that. So I'll have to figure out something cool to do with that. But yeah, that's where my reviews are, and I'm on the Twitter all the time. What would you do for a 10-year-old's birthday party? Uh, I mean, lots of cake. See? Chuck E. Cheese. Cake. I hear they're taking away the animatronics. Slice of cake a day. Something I like got that. it. Yeah. Something's good. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, either way. So, Cinema Squabble, episode number 95, in the books or on the books, in the bag, one way or the other. Uh, again, you can find us on your smart speaker. If you are so inclined, just go ahead and say, hey, play Cinema Squabble, and, and it will. Uh, it, you'll just have to know which smart speaker device you're talking to. Should that be a Google Nest or an Amazon Alexa or a... Thing. I'm not quite sure. I don't know what all the smart speakers are these days, but we'll leave it at that. For Steve Reeder and Mike Ward, I'm Adam Gerke, and thanks much to Sprint's Arbogast, our producer.